0: Well thank you for coming out on this uh, snowy morning. It wasn't quite as bad as uh, they were talking about, which is unusual for this year. And uh, actually had uh, someone text me this morning, said they wouldn't be able to make it. They sent me a photo. <coughs> um, so said to say hi to everybody. and. Uh, you know, it's interesting, we're, uh, we're, we're going through a story this morning, and we're talking, looking at a people who uh, were having the opposite problem that we are. Uh, there was no moisture in their land, and we're going to look at that story this morning in the, uh, in, in the land of Egypt as the people of God are on a journey. I'd like to ask you to ask you to just bow with me as, as we pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look into your word. And uh, we pray that, that you would bring it to life in each of our own hearts and in each of our own situations. And so, Lord, whatever it is today that your spirit is wanting us to hear, we, uh, we pray that we would be open to that. We know that you are able to speak to us. And so <clears throat> we invite you in this time, to just, uh, to just be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're looking at chapters 15 through 17, which is a big chunk. We're going to focus in on chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. And we're actually going to focus in this morning on one phrase. And here's the phrase from chapter 17, verse 7. Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? And I want to invite I'm going to ask you to just think about the fact of, have you ever been in that place where you have asked that question? Is the Lord with me or not? So let's just kind of see where we've come in the story. And I thought it would be interesting this morning just to take a few moments as we start. And we're going to put a map up. And... It might be a little hard to see there. But if you can see right up uh, right in Egypt there, kind of on the on the left side, in the upper left hand corner, you'll see uh, you'll see Ramesses, and that's the place where they were in Egypt, where they were in bondage. And that's the that's the town that they left from. And they traveled down, you'll see two two towns there, Sakha and Etham, Saka and Etham. Now, if you you were to just go straight along the Mediterranean Sea there, it's a nice short route right up into the Promised Land, which is kind of straight up that green stretch and right along the sea. But the Lord said, you know what's going to happen if I do that? And Joe shared this with us last week. One of, one of Joe's points was, you know what? God knows us, and he knows what we can handle, and he knows what we can't. And he said, if I take my people on that short route straight through, they're going to have to go through Philistia. They're going to have to get into engage in battle to go through that land, and they're going to turn around, and they're going to go back. I know my people. <clears throat> so he took them on a different route. Plus, he had different plans and different things that he wanted to accomplish. By the way, you know, when God takes a detour in your life, if you don't learn anything else from this story, remember, God's going to accomplish things on the detour. And he will accomplish his purposes in those situations. And so they head down to Saka and Etham. Now from there, the text says that they turned back and went to Rephidim. <clears throat> they turned back. Well, and the reason was that Pharaoh was going to think because they weren't going towards the Promised Land; they were going away from it. And and Pharaoh was going to think, you know what? These folks are lost. They have no idea where they are. I'm there, and I'm just going to wipe them out in the desert. And so we see here that's what happens. And Pharaoh comes up right behind them at Rephidim. And they're faced there with that water. <clears throat> you know, there's a lot easier way to go without going through the water. But we all know from last week that God had plans to demonstrate his power through what he was doing. So he brings them into this not-so-likely situation because he is going to demonstrate his power. And there, Pharaoh comes up behind them. And <clears throat> Can you imagine being there, the people... And what happened was the Egyptians came up behind them and then God, God had that cloud that they were following. And he put the cloud there and on, on one side of it it was black and on the other side it was light. And so the same cloud that was bringing darkness to one group of people was bringing light to another group of people. There's another, whole, another analogy we're not going to get into with that. But Christ becomes a source of judgment in some people's life and a source of light and life in other people's life. And so with the cloud, can you imagine that night? Egyptians are so close, you can almost hear them breathing. And yet God protected his people. And the next day, they went through the sea. Well, they went through the wilderness of Shur. Now they're traveling kind of down here. You can see that down towards the Sinai. And they came to Merah. And there the people ran out of water and they were thirsty and they came across this pool and they found out the water was bad and they couldn't drink it. And so Moses, God told Moses to throw a log in in the spring and lo and behold, the water became sweet and good and the people saw this amazing miracle. Then they went out into the wilderness of sin right in there, <coughs> traveling down. And finally, they arrived. Um, <coughs> we see that, let me just back up. It was, it, was at, it was at Elim that they came across 12 springs and 70 palm trees. Now, in, in Wisconsin, you don't count the trees, but in the wilderness, that's quite a forest, 70 palm trees. And so, you know, it had been a hard time, and I just bring this out because this was a place of refreshment. Yeah, it had been hard at Merah, but, but here we see at Elim that it was a time of refreshment and the people had water to drink. And then they moved to <coughs> this place between Elim and Sinai the Sinai peninsula where Moses would get the commandments they were now 2 weeks out three they brought some food and provisions but they were they were hungry and so they were complaining to Moses about not having enough food <coughs> so god says here's what i'm going to do i'm going to send every morning i'm going to send down bread from heaven there's a whole bunch of instructions there in, in verse chapters 15 and 16 about how they could go out, just gather enough for one day, trust God for enough for the next day. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. They really knew what that meant, to just take enough for one day and trust that God would provide enough for tomorrow. If they took too much, it would rot. And on Saturday, they were to take enough for two days, and then it would, it would not rot because God wanted them to be able to rest on one day when he would completely provide. In the evening, he brought quail, so they had meat. So they had bread and meat every day. And that brings us to Rephidim, which is our final spot this morning in chapter 17, where we're going to take a look at what happens. Again, there is no water. There is no water in Rephidim, and the people are very thirsty. So I invite you to just, you can follow along. Or if you have your Bible, first seven verses of chapter 17, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Masa in Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? So here's Israel. <coughs> Excuse me just a minute. Can I get a or Chris, so. oh, and they are, I mean, they have seen a lot, right? They have seen the ten plagues. They have seen grasshoppers and flies and boils and, and water turning into blood and serpents or, sna- or staffs turning into snakes. They watched the angel of death pass over the land and spare all of their firstborn. They have watched God protect them from the Egyptians. They have watched the seas part and they have looked at those walls as they walked through the water. They have seen God sweeten the water when they were out of thirst just a few days ago. God miraculously provided. They have seen every morning bread coming down from heaven meat coming in every night to the camp. And yet here they are we ask you know how how can their memory be so short thank you so we can only imagine the conversation that they had with Moses and so they come to Moses and say Moses it's been two days no, no water. You see, my, you see my wife there? She can't even, She's enough milk for my for my baby. And my two kids, they are crying all the time. So you brought us here. You get us some water. You know what? You might find yourself under a pile of rocks out in the desert. And so Moses comes to God and says, God, what am I supposed to do here? The people there, they're about ready to stone me. Well, I don't think we should be too quick to judge the Israelites. I don't know if you've ever gone two, three days without water. You know, what good are what good is bread and and, and quail if your throat's so dry you can't even swallow it? And let's just remember a few things here in this story. They uh, they lived in a very different time than you and I did. There there was no Bible there's no recorded word of God. They didn't get up and have their devotions every morning and <clears throat> read through again and again the promises of God. They didn't have any of that revealed word. They didn't comfort themselves. So you know, they had Moses' words. But you know, who was Moses? Moses was this guy that lived in the palace for 40 years and then exited and was out somewhere. Nobody knew where he was. He was out tending sheep while they were living in bondage under Egypt. I mean, who was this guy, Moses? Can we trust this guy, Moses? And, and here's the people that had been living in a very traumatic situation for, we don't know how many years. I mean, they were in Egypt for 400 years. We know at least for a couple generations. It had been really tough. Do you know what trauma does to people? Do you know when people are, are brutally treated? And whipped and beaten and you, you go to work every day and you don't know if you're going to come home dead or alive? Do you think there could be a trust issue? Some of you know what that's like. Some of you have been through trauma. You, you know how difficult it is to trust. And now they're being asked to trust In Moses, who they don't really know that well, and a God they've never seen, a God of whom is just one of many gods in the culture that they grew up with, it wouldn't be long, and they'd be creating a golden calf. You say, how could they do that? Well, they had limited revelation of who this God was. Those are the Israelites, and then there's us. I, I would call us the the Bethanites this morning. <clears throat> I would go so so far to say that we uh, I think we have been guilty as much as as they have, and perhaps even more. We ha- we have the revealed word of God. We have all of the we have all the story of redemptive history played out for us here that we can read. We have the Spirit of God living in us. You know, these people didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. We have the full expression of the body of Christ for support and encouragement and and teaching. And and yet, I think if we're honest, we, we we do the same thing. We get to those places where you say, God, are you really among me? Are you really among us? Are you really with me? Are you really going to come through here in this situation? Because I'm getting pretty thirsty. Maybe you've even had the thought, you know, maybe this whole thing I believe is just kind of a fantasy. I know I've been there. I remember a point in time looking out the window of the upstairs bedroom in my house. I was in the middle of about the second week following prostate cancer surgery. I'd had a, a bunch of stuff going on before that, and then that, and I was I, I remember looking out the window. I can remember exactly, and just crying out before God and, and asking the question, God, do you hate me? Have my sins come up before you in such a way? You know, if you're going to wipe me out, then just do it. Uh, a place i hadn't visited before but i a place and a place i thought i would never be but a f- place i found myself in and there's been some other times in my life where i've i've been in this place where i'm saying god are you really here or not are you really going to come through or not well let me just push let me just push pause here on the on our story for just a moment <clears throat> and, and step out and I I want to share a couple things that I have been challenged with and I, that you might want to think about because when I ask that question I, I've usually stepped over a line in a couple of areas and so I just, I just want to give this to you and I'm not saying there are simple answers to those times in our lives but you know, how could Israel go there? How, how could go there? Here, here's a couple of things, a couple of attitudes that we need to check. The first one is this. The first one is this attitude, God owes me something. God owes me something. In like fact, you might want to just check your attitude this morning. Does God owe you something? Uh you know, if, if God owes you something, why, why does he owe you something? Why does he owe you that? Why does he owe me really anything? Isaiah 29. The writer says, you know, we, we flip it around on God. And it says, you know, that which the creator has created, we, we kind of flip it around and we make God the clay. It is he that has made us, not we ourselves. Everything we have, everything we, everything that God has given us is a, is a gift. It's not something that he owes us. It's something that he gifts us. And so it's, it's so important to get to that place. You know, R.C. Sproul shares of, uh, <clears throat> and he says, when, when God's mercy comes to us, the first time we're like ecstatic and we're like surprised and so grateful. Like, God, why would you do that for me? You don't owe me that. You don't owe me your mercy. You don't owe me your grace. But then after a while, we expect it. And then farther along, we began to assume it. And in the end, we determined it. And we say, God, you know, you you owe me. You owe me this mercy. Do you know what? If, if you can get to the point where every day when you wake up in the morning, every day when you wake up, you know what? God, you don't owe me a thing. You don't owe me a thing. You, you will put yourself into a, a place of great joy in your life. Because you know what? Every day you get up. For me in the morning, I, I take a walk, a short little walk up the hill. If I walk out, I say, God, thank you that I have the ability to walk today. That's a gift. Unless, unless God owes me that, right? Then it's not a gift. Then I deserve it. But if everything during that day is a gift, it changes your heart. God, thank you that I have my mind today. Thank you that I have my wife today. Thank you that I have my children. God, all of this. I don't deserve any of this. And so you walk through the day with this sense of gratitude and gratefulness to God. Another reason why it's a great source of joy is that you have this freedom for having to earn what you get. You you have this freedom to from having to deserve. Because you know what, if God, that means that you have done things to deserve that. What if everything God gave you was not because you deserved it, but just because He decided to give it to you out of His graciousness? Then you don't need to worry about whether you deserve something in your life. Because it's not about what you deserve. God doesn't, the answer is you don't deserve anything. See, when you start there, then everything becomes a gift. And, and the other reason it is a great source of joy is because there's a, a freedom. You know, if, if there's a freedom from the wrath of God in your life. Because you know what? If, if I deserve the good things in life, then you know what? I also deserve the bad. If I get what I deserve, then not only do I say, well, God, you know, I, I've, I've done this, so you know, I think I deserve this. Also, there are the not so good things I've done. And what do I deserve from that? The people of Israel were in this place where God owed them God owed them. And, and here's the, the second one. The second attitude is that I decide what I need. I decide what I need. The people knew what they needed. They needed water, right? And God wasn't coming through. Elizabeth Elliot said this. She's a gal that actually lost three husbands over the course of her life. God has promised to supply all our needs. And if we don't have it, we don't need it. If you don't have it, you don't need it. What if, what if we could live that way? God, I don't, I've been praying about this, I don't have it. And God says, you know, you can rest because if you don't have it, then you don't need it. Because if you needed it, I would give it to you. Paul says in Philippians 4, 12, you know, I've learned, I've, I've been in, I've been in times of nothing, and I've been in times where I've had a lot. And he said, I've, I've learned the secret. I've learned the secret. And what Paul says, the secret, the secret is this, the only thing I really need is Christ. That's, that's the only thing I need is him. I've learned the secret, that I can do all things, I can, I can. Content in every situation through Christ's presence in his life. What if the definition of flourishing was this? That we could say we are flourishing when no matter what the situation is, Christ is enough. Christ is enough. All right, just a couple things to think about a couple of things that get us into that place where Israel was. But when we get there, and, and we'll get there, and we'll ask that question because we've done it in the past and, and we're sheep. So how does God respond? How does God respond to us? Well, let's look at how God, as we conclude here, let's just look at how God responded to Israel. This is, I am told, I'm not, a, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but people who study this have told me that the language here, like quarreling and grumbling and testing, all those words are legal terms. They're legal terms. So really, this is like a courtroom. And when Moses says, why are you testing God? Why are you putting God to test? He's saying, why are you putting God on trial here? It says, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And And Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? And why do you put the Lord to the test? That means, why do you put the Lord on trial here? But the people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses and they said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? God, you owe us this water? We need this water, we needed it yesterday, and you're not coming through. Here's the accusation. We have chosen to follow you, but you have failed to provide what we need. You are failing to provide as God for what we need. Look at verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. You know know what the penalty for breaking a covenant was? Stoning. And so in essence, they're saying, We're putting you on trial here, Moses. And you know what? You have failed to fulfill your promises. And God has failed to fulfill his promises. And so, our, our verdict is... We're about ready to stone Moses. So look at verse 5. This is really interesting. The Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Now we see here, Here's God's response to the people's question provision. He said, Moses, I want you to take a group of witnesses with you. Remember there's a courtroom now? Courtrooms have witnesses. I want you to take a group of witnesses, the elders. Then I want you to take the staff. Now note, the staff did a number of things. It parted the sea. It turned into a snake. But he says, take the staff with which you struck the Nile. That staff was a, it was a, an image or a picture of judgment. Judgment upon the water. It also turned the water bad. We're going to see something very interesting happen with that staff in just a moment. And so he says, here we are, we're going to go to the courtroom. Look at verse 6. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water out of it for the people. Moses did this in of the elders of Israel. So who is the one that stands before the court in a courtroom? It is the one being accused, is it not? It's like the verdict is being pronounced, I'm going to ask you to stand before the court. So God comes and he stands before the court in the presence of these witnesses. And the staff, a symbol of judgment, comes and it says in the text that he is going to stand before them on the rock. He is going to identify himself with the rock. And is going to come against that rock, and he is going to be stricken, and what's going to happen? Life-giving water is going to pour out for the people. So what's God's response to his people in this situation with a sinning against him by putting him on trial and questioning his provision and saying, is God among us or not? God, in essence, takes that penalty of their sin and and pours out life for them to drink. He becomes their savior, as it were, in that situation. Now you say, perhaps that sounds like I'm speaking a little bit more into the story than what was intended, but I don't think so. In fact, I think Paul would agree, Look at these verses, 1 Corinthians 10. I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized in the Moses, in the cloud, and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So who is that rock? In Exodus 17, that was struck, out of which water came. Paul says that rock was Christ. All sheep have gone astray. Just like the Israelites. And his response to us in these moments when we question his provision, when when our faith begins to falter, when when we are weak, God takes that away. And provides for us something even more powerful to envision than water flowing from a rock. He gives us a picture of blood flowing from a cross. This is our lives. I mean, you can think back and you think of all the times God's been faithful and all the miracles he's done in your life and the way he's come through for you and yet, you know what, next week something's going to happen. And we're going to question whether God knows what he's doing, whether God's really among us or not. And it's in those times, you know, I think it's important to remember, God, God really doesn't owe us anything. But also, he knows what we need. We don't know what we need. Yeah, we might, it might feel like we need something he's not given us, but if we don't have it, we don't need it. So we, we need to remember those things, and yet there are those times when we're just going to question him, and God's grace, as, as we see here in this story, God's grace is flowed out. Here's what God has promised in your life. I would say God's promised you one thing. He's promised to get you home. He's got a place. He's prepared that where I am, there you may be also. And God's promised to get you there. I don't know what the flight's going to be like. My favorite little story, <clears throat> I've told it before, but it's a little girl, seven years old, on a plane next to a businessman, and it's a rough ride. If you've ever been on a rough ride, the plane's dropping three, four feet and tilting and turning, so girls are reading a book and she is like calm as a cucumber. Everybody's white knuckled on the plane and finally he looks at this little girl and he says, you're not afraid. She said, no. She said, why aren't you afraid? She said, my daddy's the pilot and he's taken me home. So, you know, your father's the pilot. And he's going to get you home. I can't promise you the ride's going to be smooth. I don't know how rough it might be. But that's what I would challenge you to remember. Father, we thank you for this example Lord, it's interesting, I'm sure the people of Israel thought this time of thirst was just a matter of neglect on your part. Obviously they did. felt like you didn't know what you're doing. And yet, Father, you know exactly what you were doing because you, you brought about this whole experience that you might demonstrate this spiritual metaphor that would be remembered and recorded and written and referred to by the Apostle Paul, a source of encouragement for us today. And so, Father, we, we are reminded today in this text that you, you are a God that we can trust. And even in our weakness, and even in our questioning, your grace continues to flow and continues to be sufficient for each one of us. Father, we thank you for, for this truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.